Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Salman Rushdie, whose latest novel is The Golden House. This is the 13th novel. This collection of short stories. There's a memoir, Joseph Anton, there's a book of reportage about Nicaragua, and there's a couple of books of essays. There's a film version of Midnight's Children. You wrote the screenplay, a play of Midnight's Children, plus a play of Haran, The Sea of Stories. When I last spoke with you, I asked you what you were working on. This is two or three years ago. And you had said, I'm not working on anything. I'm working on a TV series. There's an interesting quote in The Golden House which is that if someone in Hollywood says to you, I love this project, I love it, I am going to back you 1,001%, this is genius. What he is saying translated into English is, hello. (laughs) Does that particular quote kind of sum up what happened in Hollywood? Yes. I mean, it comes out of two experiences. One is trying to raise the money for the film of Midnight's Children with Deepa Mehta, the director, when we had to walk into a lot of rooms with money people who would talk like that and then not give you a red cent. And and the other thing was developing this TV series, sort of science fiction TV series with Showtime, which I spent a year, I mean, on and off, spent a year writing drafts of a pilot and got told constantly how uniquely brilliant it was, you know. <laughs> and, and, then, and then after a year, I kind of get a text message saying, we've decided not to go in this direction. So I learned, you know, you learn. At that point, had you been thinking about Golden House, or did Golden House kind of begin as Trump began to grow? No, it was, some of it is really old in my head. I mean, that's to say the story of Nero Golden I've had in my head for probably a decade, and really having nothing to do with America initially. Because, you know, he, as we discover, although he tries to, to cover his traces, we discover that his background is in Bombay, Mumbai. And I had this idea of this character, sort of wealthy, powerful man who becomes caught up in the world of the criminal mafias in Bombay, you know, who are very much around. I mean, if you're in Bombay, you notice that they all go to the same parties, you know, and and so that's interesting. And I thought if I could put somebody in the middle of that story, that sort of mixed up world of crime and wealth, that's an interesting place. And he wants to get away from it. There's a point at which he realizes that he wants to get his fingers out of this pie, which is hard to do, as we know from all mafia movies. It's not easy to leave the mob. (laughs) They pull him right back. So I had this idea of somebody whose family is threatened by the mob if he wants to leave, etc. And he decides that he will go to incredible lengths, changing his name, moving to the other side of the world, and putting himself, as he believes, beyond their reach. And this was in the original idea you had? This was the original idea I had, and that the tragedy of this man would be that, yes, he makes a mistake. He gets involved in this criminal world, and he, he does some very shady things. You know, But then he's trying to rescue himself from that world, and not just himself, but rescue the people he loves from that world, and goes to enormous lengths to do that and then loses everything that he tried to save. So that story 
I had sitting around without even knowing exactly how it would, where it would locate itself. And then meanwhile, very unusually for me, you know, when I finished my previous novel, Two Years, Eight Months, 28 Nights, which is a sort of fairy tale about New York, you know, with genies and stuff, I almost immediately had the idea for this book kind of clicked together. One part of me thought, oh, there's that story I want to tell. And another part of me thought, I want to write, in a way, a kind of opposite novel of New York, you know, one, one with no fairy tale, a kind of social novel, you know, where I found myself reading, as preparation for it, I found myself reading things like Stondhal, you know, The Scarlet and Black, and reading Balzac, you know, great social realist novelists, reading Henry James, reading Washington Square, Another Country by Baldwin, you know, to reading books like that to try to get myself into the frame of mind for this other sort of New York novel. And then I thought, well, New York is the obvious place for this guy to come, you know, because New York is where people go to invent themselves. And so those two ideas just went click. And then, in a way, the story I was had nothing to do with Trump or any of that. It was just its own story. But I wanted that behind the story there should be this this panorama of what's going on in America in the last decade or so. And so it seemed at a certain point that it would be ridiculous not to say anything about Trump because there he is in everybody's consciousness. I mean, the novel takes place over a decade. So, but in the later stages of the novel, quite clearly, this is something which everybody's thinking about. You can't go through a 10-minute conversation without it coming up. And so I had to find a way to incorporate it. As I was reading it at the beginning, I kept thinking, Nero Golden is taking on some of the aspects of Well, Trump. he has a, his business back home in India was, he's a property developer. Actually, you know, if you spend any time in Bombay, you realize that the city is growing at such exponential rate, you know, tower blocks are going up every five minutes, so that it's not unusual for some rich man in Bombay to be involved in putting up buildings. But of course, there's a Trumpy echo there. You know? <laughs> well, also with the wife. But you know, again, Vasilisa, I don't think I consciously thought about Melania Trump for a minute. I was thinking about, you know, again, you spend any time in New York, you meet her. There's plenty of her around. And actually, one of the moments in the novel that I like very much, when she's first seducing the old bastard, you know, is that she actually produces this card with tick boxes. So they have to negotiate their deal. You know, which stores will she have an account in? What will her motor car be? How many rooms in her apartment that he is going to, will he rent it or buy it for her, etc. And this came out of an experience that I had that, well, not me, but a friend of mine, that I'd had this friend who was a much younger than me, very good-looking English art dealer, who told me about how he'd met this, this Russian girl in a club but he said, I, you know, I didn't go out with her because she was Russian. And I said, well, is that a deal breaker? And, and then he told me that friends of his had had this experience that on like the third date, they would produce this card. They would say, can we just go through this? That Do I get accounts at Fendi Gucci Prada? Do I get one at Barney's or Bergdorf's or preferably both? And what's my monthly allowance? And I suggest you are generous, and et cetera. And then once you've gone through it, if you're willing to make the deal, then they become the best girlfriend on earth. So as I say, that's not an unknown New York story. But Vasilisa, of course, is also Russian, which again brings back... But, you know, I'll tell you a very strange thing about her, which is un-Melania-like. Quite a lot of people, friends of mine and strangers, have told me how much they like her. I've had any number of people calling me say, you know, that Russian girl, she's really cool. And I think, really, that's the character you like? She's the most self-seeking person in the whole book. But apparently, she has some 
thing that people like. And I, it made me think that sometimes, you know, sometimes the villain is more fun than the hero, you know, and sometimes Iago is more interesting than Othello. She's also honest. Yes, I mean, I she doesn't it. lie at no, all. She, no. she lays it out she lays and it out. says, this is what it is. Yeah. And if you oh. want it, this is, this is the price. You know how you can be genuinely surprised sometimes by people's responses to your work. You know? and, and, and it genuinely has surprised me that she, Vasilisa, the young woman who snares Nero Golden and marries him and wants his baby, much to the consternation of his other children, she appears to be a character that people like. You know, it's funny with Melania and then there's a 10-year-old child and the older adults. But as I was reading The Golden House, Salman Rushdie, and as I was getting toward the end, I noticed even more connections, which couldn't have you couldn't have known, which is the exact nature of the money laundering mm-hmm. that Mueller has been looking at now is described in detail in the last 30 pages of the book. That's extraordinary. You know, the money laundering I'm thinking of is happening on the other side of the world. And actually, I went into did quite a lot of research into the way in which the Indian crime mafias clean up their money, how they funnel it through, for example, the movie industry or the construction industry, etc. a whole range of things in order to come out with non-tainted money at the other end. And now, yes, as you say, we find that another well-known property developer appears to be being investigated. Specifically, you talk about buying condos. I mean, this is exactly what we're reading about in the various articles. I guess I did my homework. You have the idea, and you're developing it. Were the three sons always there? Well, they no, they weren't. The three sons really were, for me, a way of allowing the novel to explore different issues that people are thinking about now. So that the oldest son suffers from what I guess is high-functioning autism verging on Asperger's. And the youngest son is very gender-conflicted, you know, and is, is really uncertain about what he wants to do about that and agonized about it, one could say. The middle son is an artist and suffers from all the problems that artists suffer from. When you were creating these, what brought you to those three ideas? Well, partly personal experience. I mean, that's to say I do have, amongst my close friends, somebody whose son, now grown-up son, I've known all his life fighting against the problems that arise from Asperger's. I mean, he's ended up in a very good place. He's, you know, doing well. But I've known him since he was a little boy, and I've seen the genuine anguish, particularly in, in a highly intelligent person, that the knowledge of yourself having this condition can cause. You know? so, so I had a, one personal point of entry into the story, and then, of course, I just tried to find out as much more as I could. And similarly, with the transgender stuff, it came from really two places. One is that you know, if you grow up, as I did in Bombay, there's quite a visible transgender community there, the so-called hijra community. And I've spent a lot of time with them because I, I researched, I went in to meet them in order to write a nonfiction piece, which I did a couple of years ago. And, and I wrote the nonfiction piece, but the few weeks that I spent amongst that group of people was so affected me, you know, a lot. And, and I just thought, this is such a powerful experience that there's more here than just an essay, you know, and, and I didn't know what that more here was, but I, I knew that I wanted to do more about that. And then it connected in my mind to the LGBT issues in New York City, you know, which are all around us. And, and again, I know two people who have transitioned really quite successfully, one in each direction. And in both cases, are much happier people now than they were before. 
you know, in my personal acquaintanceship, I have at least that starting point of two people who have who've very successfully gone through this process. Now, the character in the novel is much less successful, is much more anguished, but that allowed me to get into the problems of this area, you know, and then the kind of conflicts and disputes and so on, all of which I thought, I want to present this as neutrally as I, I don't want to say I agree with this or I don't agree with that because that's nonsense, you know. I mean, I, I thought my job here is to really find out about this and then lay it out for the reader in a way that the reader can enter that reality and work out what do you think? I mean, I think, for example, the language issue, the fact that now there's whatever it is, 17 different pronouns that people can choose to be known by. You know, if you're a writer and language makes such a dramatic shift, you want to understand that. You want to know about that. As I say, it, it started with personal experience, and then I just I tried to do my homework. I tried to get out there. And the third, the artist. Well, you live in the artist's yes, world. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, also, I think... There's a thing about downtown New York that you need an artist character because so much of the quality of life in Greenwich Village, where the novel is set, has to do with with the community of artists. And again, as it happens both in India and in New York, I've always had a lot of friends who were visual artists. When I wrote The Moor's Last Sigh, in which there's a major figure, a woman who's an Indian painter, it was partly because I'd known so many Indian painters. And in the 19 or so years that I've lived in New York, a lot of my good friends have been painters. You know, and so it gave me a, a foothold. There's also a character, the main character, the narrator, sort of the Nick Carraway character mm. in a sense. Uh, was he always there? Well, he developed in a way that was, for me, maybe the most interesting thing about writing the book. Because I always thought that I wanted a point of view character who would be a first person narrator. I also knew that I wanted him to be much younger than me and to come from an unusual immigrant community, not Italian, not Jewish. So his parents who are college professors originally came from Belgium, which I thought was, you know, the most neutral. <laughs> I mean, he could have been Swiss, I suppose. That would have been more neutral. Anyway, so I wanted that character as an observer because this is a family, the Goldens, who have secrets. And he becomes curious about that. And so I thought, okay, that as he begins to dig around with, in their lives, as he begins to find out things, we will find out things. And he, he'll become like the surrogate for the reader. That would be Nick Carraway, if you know what I mean. But, uh, right. Because Nick Carraway would never cross the line and become involved in the story of Gatsby and Daisy. He's always watching. And with Rene, my young man, my young filmmaker, it became clear at a certain point that he wouldn't be content to be on the sidelines. You know? and, and so he actually crosses the boundary and becomes a participant in their lives. When you say he wouldn't be content, what exactly do you mean? This is Salman Rushdie writing this. I know, but, but characters do sometimes tell me what they need. You know? I mean, for instance, I knew that Vasilisa, the wife, the, the trophy wife, if you like, of Nero Golden, was desperate to have a baby and probably understood that the old man was no longer capable of having a baby, so what would she do? So young Rene becomes her. So the moment you make that connection, you yeah. go, aha, this is where he comes in. This is where he comes in. And then you realize that that's a very crucial moment for a narrator when he crosses the line from being an observer to being a participant, especially when he's writing about a family which he believes to be very morally flawed, and then he does something which is morally flawed. So he has to face that problem in himself as well as in them. 
are you actually writing at that point, or you're still walking the streets of New York thinking about this? I'm doing both all the time. You know, I mean, I just, this book was a kind of obsession for me. It came out with enormous intensity. It just took over my life. I believe in walking the streets, you know, but I believe in, in, in doing the Dickensian thing of going places and finding things out, not just sitting in your comfortable little workroom imagining. So, I mean, I always loved the story about Dickens writing a scene in which two characters are walking down a London street having a conversation, that he would walk down the London that street and have both parts of the conversation to check that the conversation would take that long, to take, you know, that they would cover that walk. And that obsession with getting it right, you know, and with knowing things. I love how much of society Dickens can enter as a writer, you know, that he can enter, he can write about a murderer, a petty shopkeeper, a jailbird, an aristocrat. It seems as if he's gone to the trouble of finding out as many layers of his society as he could penetrate, you know, and I think that's wonderful advice for a writer. Get out there and find things out. The gardens, where a lot of this takes place. I know there's reference in the book to Rear Window, obviously, but yeah. is a place like Yeah, it's a garden? real place. It is. It's a real place, yeah. That's to say, you know how in, in the movie Notting Hill, there's a private garden in London that Hugh Grant, etc., disport themselves in? Well, this is a sort of New York version of that, and it, it's there. Exactly in the middle of Greenwich Village, if you imagine a rectangle bounded to the north and south by Bleecker Street and Houston Street and to the west and east by McDougal and Sullivan Streets. In that rectangle, there is what is called the McDougal-Sullivan Gardens Historic District. There's about a dozen houses on each side, and only people living in those houses whose back doors open out into this communal garden have access to it. What prompted you to use that? Do well, you first of all, I knew about it because I had two friends who had at some point lived there. Actually, my friend Francesco Clemente and his wife Alba, to whom the book is dedicated, still live there. They live in the house that Bob Dylan used to live in, by okay. the way, just FYI. <laughs> so I've been going there over these years. But then I suddenly thought, they sort of a light bulb moment, that it was a wonderful setting for this story, partly because it was a private space. So it was a, a space in which the private story of the Goldens could unfold, surrounded by physically surrounded by the hurly-burly of New York and America in that time. So you could have a private story inside a public story. You know? And I also thought there is something very theatrical. It's like a stage, like a theater on which the characters could enact their stories. And then, yes, it does have that feeling of all the windows look out onto the, the gardens. And so it had that Hitchcock resonance. And then I read somewhere that the house which inspired Hitchcock I think Rear Window, I think it's a stage set. But the house that inspired it was actually on Christopher Street, which is like 100 yards away. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, in New York, it's not unusual that you look out of your back window and you see backyards and across the backyard, you can look into other people's windows. I still remember um, back when I lived in New York, mm. uh, I had a friend who lived between Avenue A and Avenue B, and mm. I went over there once. And you walk down an alley, and there's a little building surrounded by a little park area. Mm -hmm. And that area, you know, you drive around the block in those days, yes, uh, well, you know, they well, steal your hubcaps. Back in those days, Alphabet City was dangerous. Right. No. But if you go in there, mm -hmm. it was like this little park in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. There are these secret places in New York. And, and this, I, I love it that actually even some of the New York journalists that I've spoken to said, 
you made that up, right? That you're, it's, is it based on Gramercy Park? I said, no, it's actually there. And if you look it up on Google Maps, you can see it. There's only one thing I made up, which is the Golden House itself. In real life, all the houses are exactly the same, built at the same period, and so on. I wanted there to be one house that was grander than the other houses in which this grand family would arrive to live. So I kind of transplanted in my mind one of the much larger Upper East Side mansion townhouses from like the upper 60s and, and just planted it down into one corner of the gardens so that there's one super grand house and then all the other houses are the same. So if you were to go there, you won't find the Golden House, but you will find the gardens. You make Rene a filmmaker. He's working on his film. You give his girlfriend the job of documentary filmmaker. And this allows you, of course, to use all of these ideas about film. At what point did you realize that you could do that, that you could suddenly bring in all of this culture? Well, again, that was a discovery, because when I first thought about René, I had this terrible idea, which is I thought that he might be a writer. And I started working on the book thinking that he's a writer and he's going to write about them. And, and then I just woke up one day and I thought, this is a really awful idea. The only thing in the world he must not be is a writer. It would be better if he was a dentist than he was a writer. Why? Just because it's banal and overdone and pathetic. So then I thought, okay, he's not a writer, so what is he? And again, it occurred to me that, I mean, I do know, as it happens, a, a whole group of people in downtown New York who are young filmmakers sort of like a few years out of NYU film school, beginning to make their careers. And I thought, well, because I had wanted him to be a young man, so I was thinking of what kind of young person's thing could he be doing. And then I thought about these folks that I know. I thought, oh, well, maybe he's a filmmaker. And the moment I thought it, the book kind of opened out for me. Well, at that point, you have the option of moving between narrative to various elements of screenplay. Yes. And suddenly the door opens into a million different areas. Exactly. It just released something in me, and it, it allowed the book formally to become a little more adventurous, that it could, as you say, it could suddenly slide into a kind of screenplay for a couple of pages and then slide out of it again. It allowed me, through René, to talk about my love of the movies and what, it, what they've meant to me and how I use movies to understand the world. Did that require you to do rewriting, or was that kind of at the beginning? Or? No, it was quite early on. It was quite early on. I mean, it did, yeah, it did require some rewriting, because I had to throw away the stuff about Rene being a writer. It, it also brings up something that I, I kept thinking about this as I was finishing the book. Rene is telling us, in a way, a treatment for a fictional film based on reality. Salman Rushdie is telling us a fiction based on reality, but then it's one step removed. Yeah, and then there's a point in the novel where René finishes his film, but the story of the Golden Fountain is going on. You know, so, so again, there's this variation between the thing he's created and the real story that he's telling, which I'm telling, which is not a real story. What was the rationale, or did it just hit you, of calling Trump the Joker? It's a number of things. First of all, you know, in a deck of cards, the two rogue playing cards are the Joker and the Trump. They're the playing cards that don't behave like the other playing cards. You know? And so I thought that, that was one thought I had. And the other thing is that, you know, you're talking about the movies, that one of the things that has happened in, in Hollywood is the takeover of the Hollywood motion picture industry by Marvel and DC, you know, and, and by, by superheroes and supervillains. There's a line in the novel where somebody says that what's happening is that DC Comics is taking over DC, which is 
Washington. And this idea that the superheroes and supervillains are also moving into the government. And I just thought there was something that I liked about saying that here is a novel about a real place in a real city in which real people are having their real life problems. You know, But then when you move up to the level of power, suddenly it's cartoon figures and grotesques. And how strange that just as our entertainment industry has been taken over by these things, so has a government which appears to be a version of the entertainment industry. The Suicide Squad has taken over the cabinet. Yes. Well, they make an appearance too. Speaking of the government and what's been happening, you as someone who grew up in Bombay, lives in New York, lived for a time in London, when you're looking at Trump, at Brexit, and... At Narendra Modi. Do you see these these strange connections? Yes. Yeah. It seems all a part of the same... I mean, it's not identical, but it seems that there is a series of echoes. For a start, demagoguery. You know, I mean, one of the things that Narendra Modi in India has been brilliant at is seizing the public narrative. And in a very similar way to Trump with his rallies and so on, calling upon very large crowds to validate his rhetoric. And this seems to be a phenomenon of our times. One of the things that is a little different is that Modi in India is extremely popular, extremely popular. So in a way, he's gone further. I think Trump is sort of on the edge of liked and hated, you know, and it's not like he's there forever, you know, that there's a vulnerability there. Uh, Modi, I think it's very difficult to see him losing power. The things that are similar is this, this new idea of the elite as being not what we are used to understand by the elite, which is, you know, rich people, people with beachfront properties in the Bahamas and private planes to get there. But the elite now is people who are in some way have some kind of expertise, scientists, college professors, journalists, novelists. We apparently are the elite, you know, and the billionaires in the administration are apparently men of the people. (laughs) And this amazing reversal, that's also true in India, where the same thing, the educated class has been in a way, contemptuously dismissed as elite. Does Modi use lies in the same way Trump does? Very similar, yeah. And but he's he's more da- and he also more dangerously allows, in the same way as Trump has, in some way, to my mind, enabled or released some of the worst forces in American life, like you know white supremacism and so yeah. on. Modi has unleashed or allowed to express itself a kind of religious sectarianism of a very violent kind, so that people are getting lynched, you know, because they've got beef in their fridge, whereas, you know, Hindus think that the cow is sacred. So if you're a Muslim with beef in your fridge, you get killed, and the government does nothing. So it's not unlike, only in a way, the Indian situation is almost a magnification of what's happening here. There's a kind of history toward the end of the book. Is that pretty much true, the way the mafia controls, and that the mafia, at least in the Golden House, seems to have been behind the rise of radical Hinduism. In a place like Bombay, Mumbai, there's really two kinds of mob. That's to say there's a political mob in the service of the Hindu extremist political parties. And that mob is almost entirely Hindu. Then there's a criminal mafia, which is more or less entirely dominated by Muslims. So you have a Hindu mob and a Muslim mob at the kind of secret life of Bombay, 
is about the religious sectarian battle between a political mob, which is Hindu, and a criminal mob, which is Muslim. But what happened in 2008, when the attack on the Taj Hotel happened, is 2008, it seems as if the Bombay crime mafias collaborated with the Pakistan-based jihadist groups in order to organize and carry out that attack. You know, and, and again, this is something, when you go there and you talk to people, people will talk to you about this as if it's common knowledge. But I haven't seen it very much written about. You know? and, and, so, and so I thought, if I can have a character who somehow gets in the middle of all of this, gets in the middle of the, of the triangle, which goes rich people, crime mafia, jihadist terrorists, if I could put somebody in the middle of that triangle, that's an interesting place to have a character. One of the interesting elements of the book is how when you talk about India, in my brain, I'm thinking America. You know, I've always thought that New York, Manhattan reminds me of Bombay. I've always thought it, you know, and, and not just physically, but in all kinds of cultural ways. Now, in the novel, the crime mafia in Bombay is fictional. It's called Z Company because its leader is a man whose first name begins with Z, Zamzama. In real life, the biggest mafia family in Bombay is called D Company. And it's called D Company because its leader is Daoud Ibrahim, who is like the most wanted number one criminal in, in India, who now is almost certainly living in exile in Pakistan, although the Pakistanis pretend they've never heard of him, and still directing the crime syndicate from a distance. So all of this is based on truth. And actually, in the same way as you know, in America, there are any number of movies about the mafia. You know, right. In Bollywood also, there's any number of movies about this. I mean, there's a film called Company, which is about D Company. There's two films with the title begins shootout at. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, both made in the last decade. So Bombay is obsessed with the mafia in exactly the same way as Hollywood is obsessed with its mafia. But I mean, the stuff in the novel about how the mafia operates and what it does is as accurate as I can make it. Salman Rushdie... You've also been, over the years, very involved with Penn. Yes. Uh, is Penn doing anything about Trump? I'm not any longer directly involved with Penn. I mean, I, you know, I spent more than a decade on the board as president, as vice president, etc. Right now, I mean, I, I, I show up when required to do so, and I sign what I'm required to sign, but I'm not running it anymore. Yeah, I think, you know, I think what's happened... It's a small note of optimism in not a very optimistic time. But one of the things that's happened since since the election is that, in a way, the good guys have been energized. And I think there is a, a spirit of, of resistance, to use the fashionable word, that is something new in American politics, because one of the things I've always worried about in American public life is how apathetic people have been. Like in the, the so-called stolen election, of George W. Bush, the first one, I couldn't believe that people just went, oh, okay then, <laughs> we'll have him. You know? Now I think there is more energy. And I mean, the thing that, you know, Rene agonizes about it in the novel, and so do I, the figure of the, the enormous number of people who did not vote. 90 million registered voters did not, I mean, 46.7% of, of the electorate didn't bother to show up. And I think if you have that degree of public apathy, you make possible things like, like, like Trump. I mean, I remember going to, there was two days after the election, there was all those crowds outside Trump Tower protesting, you know, and, and, and as it happened, I was in the neighborhood, so I went in to the crowd, and there was all these young people, very 
idealistic and so and at some point you know a couple of them had read a book of mine so they didn't mind talking to me so so I was talking to like 15 20 of them and at some point I said I assume you all voted at which point there was a shuffling of feet and an, uh, their eyes being downcast and it turned out that only two of them had voted and one of those two had voted for Jill Stein at that point I got angry and I said well look I said what are you doing here you know, I said, how can you come to protest a decision that you abdicated being a part of? And I said, you know, if you didn't realize it, the actual demonstration was on November the 8th. You, know, you didn't show up to that one. I mean, then they didn't want to talk to me so much. <laughs> 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 but, but it did make me feel, A, that that apathy had probably cost the Democrats the election. Young people didn't show up to vote. Hispanics didn't show up to vote. Women either didn't show up to vote or mysteriously voted for Trump, white women. And I feel that that may be different now. I feel that there actually is a little bit more of a recognition that if you don't take part in something, things can go very badly wrong. Uh, it's sort of, this is an aside, but in San Francisco, that apathy disappeared when, because of apathy and people being pissed off for whatever reason, a man named Frank Jordan, who was an incompetent who had been police commissioner suddenly became mayor, hmm. and it happened through apathy. That current mayor, who was good but had flaws. It's very dangerous because it allows people like this to come through that gap, the, the apathy gap, you know. And I remember, you know, listening to something Bill Maher said on Real Time, you know, a couple of months ago. He said people have to learn to distinguish between a flawed friend and a deadly enemy. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> and, and I think what happened here, particularly amongst young people who were Bernie people, that they lost that ability to distinguish between somebody that they might not completely love and somebody who was their deadly enemy. And so they backed away from Hillary and allowed Trump to come through that gap. Uh, there's a, a minor controversy here in Berkeley regarding how one deals with Islam, that mm -hmm. to say a negative thing becomes Islamophobic, yeah. yet at the same time we have radical Islamists and we have a president and a political party that is using fear. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think the problem is this, that if you don't call things by their true name, you allow someone like Trump to seem to be telling more truth than you. So during the Obama administration, I said that it was a mistake not to use terms like radical Islamist terror, because that's what it is. Everybody who performs these acts says they do it in the name of Islam. So to say that they're not Muslim is just a piece of semantics that doesn't fly. You know, And, and it makes people like Trump saying all Muslims are terrorists sound like they're the ones telling the truth. It's a weak position. I think what you have to be able to do is to say there has something has been happening inside the world of Islam. Let's understand what it is. Part of it has to do with the Saudi government putting enormous amounts of money into funding schools and imams propagating a very radical jihadist form of Islam, which is Wahhabi Islam. And in the Shia Muslim world, the heirs of the Ayatollah Khomeini doing much the same thing. So, so you have a real project at the very apex of the political Muslim world to radicalize young people, you know, and that has been successful. You know. Now, to say that that's not Islam 
is just to ignore the reality on the ground. Now, you can also say 99% of the world's Muslims are not like this, you know, and, and are as afraid of the jihadists as we are, you know. And, and so, of course, we have to recognize that most Muslims, like most people, are decent people. But to say that this is not a part of what's happening inside Islamic culture is just not true. You know? So let's start by accepting what's true. Then, then work very hard to not allow demagogues to demonize the majority because of the actions of the small minority. You know, but, but if you start getting the, the language wrong, you weaken your position. Well, I think what's happened here is that people have seen the Islamophobia and certainly there's been a lot of prejudice against Muslims in America. Yeah, there has been. And that's a problem in which we don't make easier by pretending that some people who are carrying out terrorist attacks are not Muslim because everybody goes, oh, yes, they are. And you undermine your argument by just being factually wrong. Another question that comes up, of course, is free speech versus free speech for Nazis. (laughs) What's your position? Well, you know, God, it's... You know, one of the things about the free speech position is that you're endlessly defending people that you don't like, you know, I mean, because it's easy to defend the free speech of people that you agree with or that you're indifferent to. You know, it's it's when people really get up your nose that you discover whether you're in favor of free speech or not, you know, and, and many people fail that test. And I mean, I've come close to failing that test because I don't like seeing a Nazi flag walking down the streets of Charlottesville. And also it has to be said that in different Western democracies, the line is drawn in different places. So in England, for example, there's a thing called the Race Relations Act. And because of the Race Relations Act, it's illegal to make racist remarks or gestures. So that person carrying that Nazi flag in London would be arrested and would be charged uh, with a hate crime and would very possibly be sent to jail. Here, because the First Amendment defines free speech more broadly than that. You know, it essentially defends the Ku Klux Klan's right to do what they have to do. And and so it would defend the guy carrying the Nazi flag. In the end, I wrestle with this a lot, but I, I mostly come down on the American side, the First Amendment side. I'd sooner know who the Nazis are. Well, of course, this also goes back to your own life and what happened with the fatwa, too. Yes. I mean, I have some personal experience of this stuff. And, of course, some of what I'm saying here is colored by that experience. But what I'm saying is that dreadful ideas, hateful ideas, do not cease to exist because you ban them. You know, and in some way, they can become more powerful by being banned because they acquire the glamour, if you like, of taboo. You know, and so it can have the opposite effect. I was always very struck by the fact that even Justice Scalia, the late unlamented Justice Scalia, no liberal, defended flag burning as an expression of First Amendment rights. Now, Now, if even Scalia was willing to say that burning the American flag is permitted by the First Amendment, then carrying a Nazi flag is too. You know, I mean, you can't have it on one side and not on the other side. So unfortunately, the problem of freedom is that some people will abuse it. But it's better to have it than not have it. You found a quote which you use at the very beginning. Uh, is, and I'm just curious at what level this quote came in. Give me a copper penny and I'll tell you a golden story. Is that where you got the name Golden House and... It's the, the, the Roman idea? Well, it, well, it's one of the things. One of the, is when I read 
very famous classical text, The Golden Ass, of the comic writer Apuleius. In that book, Apuleius explains that the term golden in Rome was used by street corner storytellers to mean a tall story, the shaggy dog story. You know, that give me a coin and I'll tell you a wonderful tale. It's like a wonderful yarn. So a golden story is that. It's a wonderful shaggy dog story. And so that was interesting. That was one thing that had stuck with me ever since I read that book ages ago. And then, you know, once when I was in Rome, I was taken into what is now buried under a hill, the actual palace that the Emperor Nero built for himself, which was called the Golden House, the Domus Aurea, which is now partly excavated because uh, it, it was buried, literally buried under a hill by one of his successors who hated it and him. And now it's been partly, and I was taken in there, and it's just the most amazingly resonant place. It's this huge, folly, gigantic palace. And I was told that in the Renaissance, some of the great artists of the Renaissance, like Michelangelo, they used to let themselves down into it on, by ropes in order to look at the paintings on the walls. You know? So anyway, this very powerful place, this, this huge, grand, overweeningly grand, palace, which was a tribute to the emperor's egotism. I thought, okay, the golden house, I could use that. And at that point, as you realize the name is golden, the golden house, you suddenly immediately had your title. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. It all clicked together, the golden story, the golden house, and the man who calls himself Nero. Salman Rushdie, now you've written The Golden House, are you starting to work on another one? This time the next one hasn't come that quickly. You know, what's happened to me in the last years, I wrote my memoir, Joseph Anton, that took like two and a half years. Almost immediately I started working on the next novel, which was two years, eight months, 28 nights, and almost immediately that I delivered that novel, I started working on this novel. So it feels like for seven years I've been nonstop. I've hardly had a weekend off. Except for your year trying to sell the except for the Except for the year with Showtime, <laughs> which, I mean, during the course of which I was doing other stuff. I wasn't, right. It wasn't full-time. But, but um, I think my brain has just informed me that it needs a break. Are there any plays or screenplays coming up, or is Midnight's Children pretty much it? There are things that I hanker after doing that I've never done. You know, I've always been very interested in the theater. It's sort of odd to me that I've never written an original work for the stage. And again, I've written one screenplay, but it's not the original screenplay. So there are things I'd like to do, but I have no idea what I'll do. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.